And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. In a world of uncertainty, one thing is for sure. Cancer doesn't stop during a global crisis. On Saturday, June 13th, the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, LLS, will host a trailblazing event, Big Virtual Climb, sponsored by AbbVie, to support their investment in groundbreaking research to advance blood cancer cures and its first-in-class patient education and services, including financial support and clinical trial navigation. Step up to take cancer down by climbing 61 floors or 1,762 steps, inside or outside, on stairs, on the road, or on your treadmill. Climb your way. Join us for an opening ceremony, and then take your climb with our heart-pumping playlist. Join us on June 13th from coast to coast as we come together to climb, conquer, cure. Register at lls.org slash bigclimb. A new VanCast to start the week and to start a new month. I know it can be difficult for some to mark the passage of time during a global pandemic, but it is officially now June, which means coronavirus and its impact on the National Hockey League is now into a fourth month. Drancer, before we talk hockey, and there's a ton to get to, and I know uh, you've got some new information on Judd Brackett, so we'll certainly jump in there. And it's a big show because we're going to be joined by Dan Cluche as well, and I look forward to uh, talking to Klutz about uh, 2003, the last time the Canucks and the Minnesota Wild met in the playoffs. But, wow, what an extraordinary weekend. Peaceful protests that turned to civil unrest and then riots as cities across the United States burn in the wake of the killing of George Floyd in Minnesota. And Look, many of these are National Hockey League cities. We both have friends and colleagues in these remarkable places. And, look, you spent the last bunch of years living on that side of the border. I mean, it really, this is it's tough to watch. It's really tough to watch, and... You know, it's sad. Uh, All around, it's sad because, you know, I've always had positive interactions with the police, but I'm privileged to be a white man, and and I don't understand the fear that, you know, black people, especially in the United States, but in Canada as well, live through day-to-day, understanding or or not having the experience where if things go wrong, you can turn to the police, And, and in fact, having quite the opposite experience you know i think there's people who are angry and justifiably so it's a it's a righteous anger and as you know i've watched this unfold with horror and sympathy this weekend you know my my honestly my thoughts have just been with uh, my american friends and and with communities that have been disenfranchised and, and persecuted historically and you know i know my wife and i have have donated to the committee to protect journalists i've been really troubled to see the way that police have ignored uh, press members presenting their credentials at these protests, uh, you know, across the country. We've seen this repeatedly. Uh, and I've also, you know, made a donation to the Know Your Rights camp, which is Colin Kaepernick's organization. And, you know, I, I know people don't come here for politics, but this is one that's relatively clean cut, in, in my view, anyway. And 
it's a human issue, a human rights issue. It's it's not about left or right. It's not about uh, politics. It's just about human decency and accountability and, and the sort of importance of, you know, making sure that regardless of whether you wear a badge or not, murder is murder. And what we've seen, uh, you know, especially with the George Floyd case, I mean, you can't watch that video and not have an extraordinary emotional reaction if you're a human being. And, you know, the idea that it took them three, four days to lay charges. I mean, when you consider that context, uh, you know, I, I have a lot of sympathy for the reactions uh, that we've seen south of the border this weekend. Yeah. And, and look, it's impossible not to watch that video and have a visceral reaction. And, and I understand the outrage and I'm with you again, uh, white and privileged and really in no place to, uh, you know, to, to speak, but, but, we're humans, and, and you're right. It's not a civil rights issue. It's a human rights issue. And if people are screaming at their phone as they listen to this and say, stick to sports, you know, you have to realize if, if that's your take on this, is two guys here that usually talk hockey, stick to sports, then you're part of the problem. Because sports is what we get to do when we have our priorities in order, when yeah. our house is in order and people are able to, to live just lives. And... You know, again, it's just I feel for so many people uh, in the wake of this because as the rioting began and the looting begins and then so many others are hurt, you know, the people that are trying to get through this pandemic and, and get their businesses up and running again. And now they're going to have to go right back to start from scratch again. And so, so many people in so many different ways uh, have been made hurt by all of this. It's just, it's terrible to watch and and see. So I think it was important that, you know, we at least acknowledge that off the top. Um, again, hockey is hockey, and it's what we do for a living, and it's what we love to do, uh, but there are priorities in all of this. Now, that said, uh, it was a busy week for the Vancouver Canucks since you and I last recorded a, a mm -hmm. VanCast. We had our last one on Thursday, and of course, uh, Friday comes the news uh, that Judd Brackett uh, no longer with the Vancouver Canucks, an extraordinary press release. It was brief, it was blunt, and it included language that I just generally don't see in a press release. You've written press releases at the NHL level. I've certainly uh, been on the receiving end of so many uh, over a couple of decades. And to sort of see that final sentence of the press release that, you know, this is Jim Benning's team and, you know, you will answer to Jim Benning sort of was the way I read it. Uh, we can talk about that part, but first and foremost, let's just get into Judd Brackett's dismissal because I understand you've got a little bit more information that you want to share. Well, yeah, I, you know, I've been, I've been trying to run this down for a while, but the fact of the matter is it's a very difficult one to run down in part because, you know, there are a lot of competing agendas and there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of sort of reporting out there that's dead on. I mean, you know, Satir Shah especially stands out to me as having been well ahead of this. And, you know, I think I tried to sort of run down how I saw that crazy week in May unfolding and, and sort of what the dynamics were behind it. But, you know, I, I think ultimately it was seen as, you know, it's clear that Jim would speak and characterize negotiations a certain way, and then there would be a response. And then Jim would speak and there'd be a response again. And so, you know, I tried to lay that out, but I do think there's a fair bit of, you know, on, on one side ass covering and on the other, uh, you know, pushing an agenda. And, and so it's, it's difficult to ferret out the truth in, in that. And you end up writing something that nobody likes. And, and I think that's what I did on Friday. <laughs> so, you know, look, I've, I've had a lot of reaction since then, and I've been able to follow up and, and have some further conversations. And, you know, I think the biggest misconception coming into this weekend and based on the comment section at the athletic on that piece that I wrote is this idea that the, you know, and, and I tried to begin pushing back on this almost immediately after the availability itself, but the autonomy that we're talking about here is not, you know, the director of amateur scouting want, wanting complete autonomy to make their own picks. Like that's ridiculous, right? That's like me saying to you, Jeff, like I'll continue the van cast only if I have complete autonomy over what you say. Right. Like no one would ever request that. No one would ever get that. You know what I mean? Like it's a, it, that's not what this was ever about. And I think when we look back at this last year and, and what unfolded in Canucks amateur scouting, I think we're looking at, you know, 
what essentially was the slow unfolding of a lame duck season for a scout in bracket who, you know, was up jumped in terms of the responsibility he was granted back in 2015, right? He was a relatively low man on the totem pole. And when Benning said that Weissbrod supported that promotion at the time, like that's true. Like that is absolutely 100% the truth. And so, you know, Judd was promoted to director of amateur scouting in that first year, that 2016 season, you know, it's said, and, and I've had a variety of corroboration internally on this, but it's said that, you know, Benning and Weissbrod got fixated on, on Neil Levy and they make that pick. And I do think that, Linden and, and some other senior members in the organization became concerned with the process and became concerned that the organization had laser focused with too narrow a focus on Yo Levy um, and maybe hadn't dug, dug deeper in terms of the process leading up to that. And in 2017, you get this hotly debated. I mean, this has now become part of the Pedersen legacy, right? Is the Pedersen pick and this idea of two factions and Trevor Linden ultimately making the decision to side with the scouts over Jim. And, and look, I can't really tell because again, I think there's competing agendas here and I don't, I don't know exactly who I'm being spun by. I don't, you know, it, it's tough for me to know for sure. Cause I wasn't in the room, but based on what I think is the most credible sort of middle route as I can figure it. I, I mean, I do think that Jim liked Glass a lot and and thought that Glass was too low on their lists. And, you know, I've heard stories from people involved in the process who say, you know, Jim came in and wiped the board down and wrote Cody Glass on the on the board. And, and look, <laughs> I'm hearing from other people that that's not quite the case. I think ultimately what I know is that Glass never surpassed Yo Levy on the Canucks list. And whether Jim was pushing to have Glass higher or whether he was whether it was a debate over one versus the other, you know, I, I can't say with certainty how far it went. But, you know, certainly there are people who were with the organization at the time who say, without Linden, the pick is glass. Like if Linden doesn't step in, the pick is glass. And on the other side, there are people who insist that, you know, Jim was really high on Pedersen too, as was Weiss Broad and on and on. So you know, take that as you will. I don't know if we'll ever get the unvarnished story there, but it's clearly a part of it. And I do think if you look at the late round picks, for example, from 16, you look at like Stuckel and Brett McKenzie, and you look at the Canucks' approach thereafter, you do see sort of a different priority in terms of the club really going after high-end skill in every round. I mean, e even if it didn't pan out with guys like Petrus Palmu, um, you know, it did with other picks that they make and, and either way you see a fundamental shift I think in terms of the process and you can you can tell I mean right off the bat there's no more Rodrigo Abel's although uh, Christopher Gunnarsson might qualify depending on um, you know how you sort of want to frame it so fast forward Linden's dismissed and the club goes through the cycle during the 1819 season and 2019, now there's been reports in Vancouver that day two of 2019, the list was amended significantly. And after that, you know, uh, Sakaris reported it, Matt Sakaris at TSN 1040, our colleague, reported it as Brackett was stripped of his authority. And there's been a variety of sort of tales to that extent. Uh, J.D. Burke has, has sort of matched those as well. And... You know, I asked Jim about this, and, and I know you've listened to the conference call, though you were on the radio during it, but I asked Jim this, and he was miffed, right? Like, completely miffed. And I don't think that was disingenuous. I don't think he was ducking the question. Like, that's not Jim's style. Jim would have addressed it if he, knew, if he understood sort of what I was picking at. And the fact of the matter is, and I, I've talked to so many people who were involved now, is there was nothing out of the ordinary there, you know, there was, the list was amended between day one and day two. And the way that I've sort of, it's been framed to me anyway, is, you know, Jim really liked Nils Hoglander. And there had been some organizational thought that really the club needed to prioritize size and a defenseman, ideally, uh, in, with that second round pick. And the way that it's been sort of explained to me is, ultimately, with the way that it shook down, and a player like Hoglander, who the Canucks had rated in the you know late teens on their overall list, uh, still available, there was sort of a collective decision made that at this point in the draft, we can't be prioritizing positional need, not with a player we think can be you know X, Y, Z down the line. And Hoglander's obviously exceeded expectations in his draft plus one season. So that was clearly the right decision. But I don't think that was 
something that uh, was out of the ordinary, and I don't think it was something that caused any significant rift. Like, I think that was normal NHL process, and, and I do think that the way that that day two uh, amended list thing has been talked about has been overcooked in this market and ultimately is not one of the key drivers of, you know, the... And I, I don't want to go so far as to say dysfunction because, uh, you know, I'm sure the Canucks would have been prepared to to hold the draft next week if that had sort of gone through. But, you know, certainly the storyline that's unfolded as to, you know, leading up to Judd Brackett's departure and especially with some of the back and forth we saw in the media in early May. So where I do think we get to the canary in the coal mine here anyway is in the staff departures. And you have... His name's Chris McDonald, who joins the, yeah, Chris McDonald joins the Arizona Coyotes organization as director of European amateur scouting. That happens shortly after the draft. And then the club lets go of, you know, three scouts and then Doug Gaspar leaves on on his own accord. But you have, in particular, uh, you know, and his name is, excuse me, I just want to make sure that I'm right on all this, right? Dan Palango. And Dan Palango actually was a Mike Gillis era hire who was an agent at Mike Gillis's firm uh, prior to joining the Canucks organization in 2010. And, and over the years, he'd sort of emerged as, you know, I think Brackett's one of Brackett's more, more one of the people in the organization who was closer to Brackett. And I think the sequencing there went down so as that the org would have wanted, you know, if if. If they'd all been sort of buttoned up, if the communication had been buttoned up, and if Brackett had been more involved in the decision-making, the way I understand it is that perhaps, you know, McDonald might have, they might have pushed to keep McDonald because he would have been the most ready to fill uh, Polango's shoes. Um, but instead, the way it all went down, uh, you know, I don't know that Brackett was as involved in those as, as he would have liked to be. Um, and then the organization goes about restocking uh, they hire three other scouts coming in. I'm not exactly sure how much input Brackett had on those, although, you know, I, I think the idea that Brackett uh, would have hired Troy Ward, who obviously has ties to Weissbrod and company from their time, uh, shared time in the Calgary Flames organization, I think we can all side-eye that with some skepticism. So I think thereafter you get to this point where, you know, there are personnel decisions being made with an amateur scouting that don't seem to have Brackett's fingerprints on them. And ultimately, there's only ever one sort of offer that is rejected. And and the way it's been framed to me is that that offer was rejected pretty aggressively, like not with a phone call one-on-one uh, between Brackett and Jim, but in, in, in a more public, I mean, public within the context of management sort of way and so I think though as I've sort of gathered a little bit more onto the story is I don't know if it was a straight rejection as much as it was a request for clarification on how things would function between them going forward and but I think the whole way that that went down uh, suggests that you know there was an understanding anyway that the, the way the let me frame this more carefully the way that it all went down I think was off-putting to both sides if that makes sense like the aggression in the rejection and the request for clarification I suspect and I don't know this but I suspect was seen perhaps as being uh, you know flippant I don't want to go so far as to say disrespectful but off-putting and on the other end I think you only ever even get to that point if you're not feeling particularly confident that your hands are on the wheel in the first place uh, in terms of running your department. And so you get through to, you know, the the latter stages where this things really sort of began to go off the rails. And, you know, you, we, we get this these answers from Jim. I mean, you asked him on the Nils Hoglander uh, conference call, J-Pat, and I think that was really the start of, of things that began to blow up where, you know, Jim characterized negotiations as ongoing. Uh, I, I think... Th- you know, perhaps well, they the, the, intended the, to... the real the red flag there when I asked him was he said Judd is with us for now for now right right so it wasn't and, exactly a full throated endorsement exactly but I but mean, but what preceded that but what preceded that 
was, you know, oh, we're, we're talking still, right? Yeah. And, and that was, you know, a, a mischaracterization. I mean, frankly, right? Like, there weren't ongoing talks at that point. And, you know, uh, things begin to blow up in the Vancouver market. Jim gives another sort of follow-up quote on, along a similar vein to McIntyre on Wednesday. And then we get more details the next day. And, I mean, that's, that tells you everything you need to know about where the level of trust and communication was between parties by that point. And ultimately, I think the heat gets turned up to the point where, you know, the Canucks ripped the Band-Aid off this past week. And so we are looking at a situation where the Canucks say they'll go into the 2020 NHL draft whenever that occurs with their current staff. They're not bringing in anyone or replacing Bracket internally immediately. And, you know, they have a lot of, you know, veteran sort of cross-checking type guys. Like, I, I think they'll be fine to handle the draft that way. Uh, but when you look at sort of their scouting staff in the wakes of in the wake of the departure of guys like McDonald and, and guys like Brackett once he in fact leaves the organization on June 30th, you know you've got Ron Delorme of course who's the chief amateur scout. But in terms of the cross checkers, as I understand it, you've got Derek Richard, uh, who's I think only this was either his first or his second year as a cross checker. Todd Harvey, who in talking to people around the industry. Uh, especially over this weekend, uh, is very highly regarded. Like a lot of a lot of people just really respect the work ethic there. Uh, he's based in Ontario. He's another cross-checking guy they've got. Um, you know, I think you've got Brandon Benning, but ultimately you get to so so you've got enough to to surely get through this draft. But there's not a ton of that like middle management level. Uh, of experienced cross-checking guys in the scouting department um, based on, you know, some of the changes we've seen over the past 13, 14 months. And it'll be curious to see sort of how they address that um, and and where this goes from here. But what's clear is with Brackett leaving, uh, the club's lost a, a bright, very hardworking guy. And, you know, I think there are some big questions here in terms of how, you know, even with what I've laid out, which I think is almost a blow-by-blow, of how we got to Friday, you know, how did things sour to that point? Uh, was there, was it clear? Like, did they decide that bracket wasn't up to it? What, and if that's the case, how do you square that with the results of the past three, four years at the draft table? Uh, what sort of control did various people in the organization want? Uh, and how will the club restock or reconfigure their amateur scouting department going forward? You know, those are all really relevant and, and fascinating questions and, and ones that I think are are tough ones that the organization will have to answer, especially because this club cannot afford to take a step back in terms of the quality of the talent that they're identifying through the amateur draft. It's it's driven. It's been a strength of the organization over the past three, four years. And, you know, now this one department that sort of stands out as having performed ably or, or above average over the past three, four years, um, you know, is now shrouded in question marks. And, and that's not good, I don't think, uh, just in terms of the way you want any organization uh, to flow. Well, let me ask you this, because I referenced it off the top. I mean, the news mm -hmm. comes out at around 10 o'clock on Friday morning, and it's a three-paragraph press release. You know, the first one says they're not bringing Judd back. The second one is your standard quote from Jim Benning thanking Judd for his years of service, uh, you know, but saying that life will be fine, they'll move on. And then I thought an extraordinary sentence that you just don't see in a lot of par in a lot of press releases. And it read, no further changes were made to reporting structure or personnel among the amateur scouting staff. Final draft decisions continue to be the responsibility of general manager Jim Benning. Like, what do you make? From the inclusion, like forget the sentence itself and the way it's constructed, but the inclusion of that sentence in a press release. Yeah, it seems to be, it, it seems a little heavy handed to me because obviously the GM is making the final decision on draft selection, right? Like no one thought that Judd Brackett was making the selections, right? Like surely, right? That was never yeah. a, a local talking point or debate. Uh, you know, it was about influence and about sort of overall um you know, overall information and intel and, and gathering. I mean, it wasn't about that, and I don't think it ever was. Like, I really don't think that was the autonomy divide here. I really think it was about personnel um, dating back to that summer. 
And yeah, I mean, that does read to me like a late, in, like having drafted press releases myself, that reads to me like a late inclusion. Um, so, you know, uh, let's go with two lines, keep it simple. Like, no, we need something that really emphasizes that this continues, like that we have continuity. Uh, I don't know, <laughs> you know, I can see that. I can see that conversation taking place just empathetically because uh, I've been there. All right. Well, a, a lot to digest there, and certainly it was the talk in the Canuck realm over the weekend, and it'll continue to be. I mean, it's not uh, a story that's gone yet, because uh, at some point, as you mentioned there, you know, they're going to have to put together a draft list, and they're going to have to uh, assemble a crew, and, and ultimately uh, step to the plate, even though that, uh, well, we found out over the weekend that they still maintain their, their first-round pick. Pierre Lebrun confirmed that for the time being, at the very least. The Canucks still in possession of that first-round pick, so it is going to depend on the play-in series with the Minnesota Wild, and, uh, you know, we still need to have a date set for uh, the NHL draft whenever uh, hockey resumes, if hockey is able to resume. We promised a, a guest off the top of the, the show, and we're going to get to Dan Cluche here momentarily. I'm looking forward to that because, uh, you know, the minute the, the matchup with the Canucks in the wild uh, was revealed, I mean, I think a lot of people's attention turned to 2003. And you're talking about central figures uh, in Canuck playoff runs in that era. Obviously, Dan Cluche uh, was in the middle of things. Uh, he was in the net. And unfortunately, not quite enough saves. So we know what happened the year before. Uh, the Lidstrom shot from center. And again, uh, the Canucks had a number of chances to eliminate the Minnesota Wild. And they just couldn't get rid of those pesky Wild and ultimately lost in seven games. Yeah, and look, Dan is awesome for taking our questions. And we went pretty hard on, on some of the bad goals against and how he remembers it and some of his memories. But I do think, too, in the context of the discussion we've had to this point, J-Pat, the answer that he gives on his departure from the organization is one to pay attention to toward the tail end of this interview. The Last Dance documentary has brought up the ongoing debate that no one will ever win. Is Michael Jordan the GOAT? Is LeBron James the GOAT? One thing we do know for sure, Drancer, is Manscaped is the GOAT for men's grooming. We already established that the podcast smells good, uh, but yep. you got to feel good too when you're hosting a podcast or if you're listening to a podcast. You know, you got to have that uh, confidence that uh, you got it going on. Manscaped is the only men's brand <laughs> dedicated to below the waist grooming and hygiene. Father's Day coming up. I don't know. Do you go down this road uh, for Father's Day gift for your dad? That seems like maybe, eh, maybe. I, who knows? Uh, to each their own, I suppose. Uh, Manscaped is forever changing the grooming game with their perfect package 3.0 essentials kit. Uh, get 20% off and free shipping with the code THEATHLETIC at manscaped.com. Again, 20% off, free shipping with the code THEATHLETIC at manscaped.com. That's 20% off, and the shipping is free at manscaped.com. Use the code THEATHLETIC. Well, let's welcome Dan Klutze to the VanCast. Klutz needs no formal introduction to hockey fans in Vancouver, but he certainly deserves credit for taking our call moments after it was revealed that the Canucks in Minnesota would meet whenever hockey returns. That series brings back a lot of memories for a lot of people, and of course, Dan was in the middle of it all, and we figured he'd offer a great perspective, so we hit him up, and he has agreed to join us here on the VanCast. Dan, thanks so much for doing this. Anytime. It's uh, good to hear you guys. It's been a while. Well, it's uh, good to hear you as well. And, you know, I mentioned it there. Uh, the minute that these matchups were revealed, Vancouver, Minnesota, and of course, people are thinking way back to 2003, the last time the Canucks and the Wild met in the postseason, you were there. Uh, do you recall the series or have you scrubbed that from your memory bank? Well, it's not a positive memory. Uh, but yeah, I do recall uh, the, the series. I, I recall that season coming off uh, the St. Louis series and going into uh, playing Minnesota, who had just finished uh, upsetting Colorado. And uh, yeah, I, things started uh, fairly well for our group. And then it seemed like uh, game five and six weren't great for myself personally. And and then obviously they went on and did the exact same thing to us as what they did to Colorado. And then game seven, of course, you know, you're up to nothing. So you're right. Games five and six don't go your way, but you get game seven at home, you know, and it gets off to a decent start. You're up to nothing. And it looked at that point like, all right, you know, the last two games may be a bit of a blip, but you've got it figured out. And then, of course, uh, things sort of spiral from there. What do you remember about the goal that started their comeback? That weird, 
the puck flipping up over the net. Like, you probably never even see it until it's in the back of the net. Yeah, I, you know, that was such a weird play. And then um, the guy was just standing at the right place at the right time and just baseball swings it into the net. And, um, yeah, looking at back at that, like, what are the chances? But uh, it, it worked for them and... You know what I mean? It's just unfortunate bounce for our team, but it, it got them going. It was late in the second, if I remember correctly. And um, it seemed like we'd always come out and play well in the first period in that series. And we sure did that. And we played fairly well in the second until that, that weird bounce went in. Dan, when you think back to that series, you know, I think back to Brian Burke, for example, saying that's not a hockey team, that's a cult. And, and as the series went along, sort of the temperature turned up to, to the point that, you know, Jacques and Mark Crawford didn't shake hands following Game 7. Um, when you consider how that ramped up and, and what your group thought of the Wild, like, what do you remember about that enmity? Well, for me, it wasn't, it didn't feel like a, a, a huge rivalry. Like, like, I found, like, the St. Louis series was more intense and there was more in your face it was uh it was like a war out there every shift there was like scrums after every whistle and people were in my cage after every whistle trying to get me off my game it started even in warm-ups in st louis and and then we went on to play uh and even st louis was more built like us like they like to exchange chances uh they were more like open-minded like we were a little bit and Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden we play a Minnesota team where uh, it seemed like everybody from their first to fourth line to their first D to their 60 were willing just to not cheat and do all the little things. Like it didn't matter what, they were going to stick to their game plan. No matter if they were down or up, they, they weren't going to change. And um, I think it was a really, not the greatest matchup for our group, um, and as far as rivalry, like I didn't feel like, like you, you, I even tried myself because I felt we played better as a team when we were engaged in, like after the whistles I, I, and things like that, we were better like the Yarko Rutus, Cookie, uh, mm-hmm. Bert and Murray Barron and Jovo. I, I felt like we were better when we we're like on edge. Um, I even tried, I think this after the second period, to go after Rollerson just to change things around or get get things going. But they just kind of just stuck with it for, and give them credit, give their staff, their coaching staff for making them believe, and they did not cheat. And and at the end, they, you know, like you guys said, we're up two nothing late in the second, and they still didn't change. And obviously, they had guys like Gabrick that had an unbelievable season in uh, playoffs and Wes Waltz was really good if I remember. Even Sergei Zoltok uh, played really well in that series. So um, like for me, it didn't feel as nasty as the the, the coaches, what they had going on as far as matchups and things like that. Uh, Maybe it felt different for other players, but it didn't feel as intense as the St. Louis series personally. Yeah. And when you put that season, looking back on it, in the context of your career, you know, it was your third season in Vancouver, but your second full season. And it was a season where technically you sort of improved. Like that was a above average season as a workhorse starter for you going into the playoffs. And probably the last, and correct me if I'm wrong, but really it ends up being sort of the last playoffs that you are able to compete in before the injuries sort of really begin to wreak havoc on, on your career, um, you know, sort of beginning down the stretch of that 03-04 season. When you consider that, the West Coast Express era teams, looking back on it, does it feel like, uh, like, does it feel like a missed opportunity? Does it feel like something that you, you know, still kick yourself about? Well, it always feels that way. Every time you make the playoffs and you don't get the, you know, we always, we always play hockey for the Stanley Cup and, when you get in the playoffs and and you don't get it, it's well for me personally, it, it's a failure. Um, and to go back to your question, um, yeah, like I feel like that season, I learned so much as a goaltender um, mentally. 
uh, even the way it ended, like as, and I'm the, I was so hard on myself looking back. I wish I wasn't so hard on myself. Like you learn as you get older. Uh, but that next season, like I was so different coming in. And I remember when we got into the playoffs against Calgary, I, I really, really felt like I was in a good spot mentally. And again, that's when I broke my ankle in game two or three, if I remember correctly. But I felt like that season is where I learned the most. Um, and yeah, like it was, it was great playing with the West Coast Express. And, and you only knew, like I, we knew at the end of the year, we always get together, all the players, and we have one last night out. And But it was different after the Minnesota. We knew that we only had one more kick at it. Uh, we weren't sure what was going to happen, what management was thinking, uh, because they could, at the end of the day, do what they want to do. But we felt, okay, like we maybe only have one more chance, all of us together. And I feel like as a group, we took a, a big step there. And um, I personally kind of approached that last season uh, that it was my it was the last chance we were all going to be together. And we formed some really good relationship and friendships with, with a lot of those guys. And, uh, you know, I, I, to this day, I just wish that, uh, not that, uh, who knows what would happen, but that, that injury that happened, that's why I, mm -hmm. when I was in the trainer's room, I was very, very disappointed. And I, you know, I, I took it really hard, but that's hockey and that's sports. Tom mentioned missed opportunity. Like, you guys take care of St. Louis, as you mentioned. That was a terrific series. And meanwhile, Minnesota has shocked Colorado. And then on the other side, you've got Anaheim knocking off both Detroit and Dallas, the top two seeds in the West. There was so much talk on the outside that this path was clearing for the Vancouver Canucks, you know, to get to the Stanley Cup final. Do you recall in those moments, like, did you ever allow yourself to sort of view what was happening around you and think those same things? No, I, I've always been, you know, try to stay in the now and just not look ahead. And uh, don't get me wrong, it's a little harder when you're playing the Canadian market because of the highlights and everything's always on. And, and But uh, like we played game six, I think game seven was a back-to-back, -back, if I remember correctly. Like you don't have a lot of time to 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 overthink things or get stuff in your mind like you're you're in, you're you're trying to stay in the now and and that's kind of what I've learned through that that I wish I would just that's where I learned so much mentally uh on my own I know in previous seasons like when I think a year or two before that I had a, a well you guys all know Andy Mogu was there it was he was such an easy guy to talk to uh because he had been through it and and it wasn't so much about positioning glove here or rotation here or all the goalie terms it was more his approach is and as an easy guy to talk to after a game because he'd been in all those moments and um so you know he, sometimes you wish that a guy like that would have been around after game six on the plane ride back uh to talk goalie stuff it's one thing to talk goalie stuff with a head coach or another player yes they have great points but to actually talk to a guy like a goaltender that's been through it is is a little bit different. And we all remember you. Like you were such a fiery competitor. Uh, I just wonder, you know, were you able to park the disappointments of playoff losses? You know, I'm talking series losses, not individual games. But once you were eliminated, like, could you leave it at the rink, or did that stay with you all summer? It stayed with me for a long time. Like I always, obviously, like you said, I was extremely competitive, take everything really hard. And um, it does stay with you for, for a long time. And it, it actually motivates you to train harder, which, you know what I mean? You, you, you leave there, you, you don't really start to forget it until the next season starts, for me personally, because uh, that's just the way I was, I was built. I, I, that's just the way I, I used to think and used to, motivate myself uh but yeah it, it did take a long time for sure dan do you have a favorite memory um maybe something fans wouldn't know something behind the scenes something about the group uh whether it was you know a rallying cry moment or 
um, you know, what Roley said to you when he declined the fight or, or something like that from that series that still stands out to you, makes you chuckle? Uh, I don't know if there's too many things to chuckle about. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, no, I, I, there wasn't a lot of things because, like I, like I told you, I was extremely serious back then and I, I didn't have time to enjoy it as much as I would have liked. Um, um, but just the experience, like uh, going out, you know, with this sold out building with the towels and just that feeling like it was, it was unbelievable what the fans were, were doing. It was, it was extremely loud and it was, it's just a fun atmosphere to play in. And I, you know, even though we, we didn't win the Stanley Cup or we didn't win that series, like the memories are, are still uh, pretty good in my mind. Just to have that experience to play in the National Hockey League and, and play in front of solo buildings, the Stanley Cup playoffs, it was, it was a lot of fun. And to do it with great people like Nazi, Burt, Moe and uh, Matthias and Sammy and all those guys. So th- we still, you know, it, it was great. And Dan, you formally sort of left the organization in September um, with what you experienced, you know, in your seven years back with the club, working as a goaltending uh, consultant and then a goaltending coach and then a consultant again, you know, you really were front row in terms of having a a view toward the evolution of uh, of Jacob Markstrom. And we all saw what he did this past season, really finding another gear, another level what have you seen in your experience working with him and just seeing his goaltending develop uh, that stands out to you? Well, it's been great. For first of all, I like you said, I've known Marky for a long time, and uh, he's been great to work with. I, I really enjoyed my time working with him. Uh, like you guys said, it started in Utica uh, when I was working with uh, with the Comets and. Uh, it was not easy for him to go down there and all of a sudden you're waking up and you're in Utica, which is a lot different from Florida or Vancouver. Um, but give him credit, he went in there and he did exactly what uh, we plan on doing. He took our team all the way to the Calder Cup Finals and he was outstanding in his practice habits and his game like just took another step. Uh, that's when... I was convinced that he was eventually going to be a number one goalie in the National Hockey League, but it was going to take time. And I remember talking to management about that, and and I, I'm thankful that they did listen to that path because he's a number one goaltender. His makeup is a number one goalie, and when sometimes people don't realize that backups and starters have different makeups and. Uh, his makeup is starter all all the way. There's no questions about it. And so, uh, yeah, he went on. He went to Utica, had an unbelievable season, came back the year after. And then there, Millsy was playing more than he was. And like I said, his makeup is more of a starter. So there was a lot of ups and downs mentally. Why am I not playing and things like that. And my message to him was to, to stay with you know, with the, the process that we had and the game plan that we had. And then, unfortunately, he got injured um, uh, later on that year. But then he came back the year after. And, again, he battled through some ups and downs, which were totally, totally normal for a young guy trying to become a number one goalie. And, that again, that was my message to management. And I remember he had a really tough December in 2017-18 season. And um, he he found a way to his credit. He, he never gave up. And I remember this uh, early January, we had a day off and I had a phone rang and Marky asked me if he could skate that day. And that's when I realized, okay, there it is. He's turning the page and off he's going to go here. I remember coming home and my wife's like, why are you so happy today? And I said, Marky's figured it out and you watch and... After that, like from January on that season, I think he had a, over a 930 save percentage on the road, which is hard to do. Uh, and then he just kind of just kept building on it. And obviously, you know, 
those couple years that I was there, we, we, we weren't competing for a playoff spot. Like let's, we, we had some, uh, holes to fill. We we're in transitioning. And, uh, I, I think people don't realize that, but as a goaltender, it's, there's, there's sometimes it's, it's hard to play on those types of teams mentally. Um, and I think he got caught up in that a little bit early on, but then he figured it out. And, uh, you know, I went through the same thing. I went from Tampa. I think I was nine and thirty, nine wins, thirty losses, and then I come to Vancouver, and all of a sudden I'm pulling in the thirty wins, fifteen losses. You know what I mean? I, I all of a sudden didn't change. I didn't change a, a lot of things. All of a sudden, my team could score more goals, and my team's not allowing as many chances. So, I think with the way, like it's perfect timing the way Marky worked it because now you could see the Canucks. You know, they could score goals. Uh, so if you do let in a, a so-called soft goals, you know it's going to come back. Like, so right there mentally, you're staying in the game, engaged. And all of a sudden, the decor has changed uh, quite a bit. And guys have stayed healthier, like Edler and Tenev. Uh And now you bring Myers and you got Quint Hughes, which um, they didn't have those last couple of years. So as far as Markey's game, I think it's... It's perfect timing. It's evolving at the same time as the team is changing too. So uh, I think at the same time, you got to give Marky a lot of credit and obviously uh, Greener and his staff for, you know, playing a, playing this style that, that works for that group. Yeah. And I just want to pick at really quickly the starter versus backup mentality because it's apparent to those of us who are around the team that Marky, Marky's voice resonates like rings loudly in that room but he's very guarded with the media uh that's you know his choice and and he's made it and he's been disciplined about sort of sticking with it what do you think it is about him that makes him a natural starter as you've said or he's a competitor and he hates to lose is the the obvious things that mm -hmm. teammates want to see um uh He's, he's emotional, which sometimes could go one way or the other, but there's, but now you could see it when things are going more in a positive direction, the emotional is a good thing. Uh, it's one thing if you're a last place hockey team and your goaltender is always coming in breaking sticks, that's different, right? Um, mm. But as far, I've always said this all along, Marky's kind of a little bit of an old school type of guy. Like it's almost like he should have played in my era, but <laughs> he's uh he's got that old school approach which i think he's a leader uh in practice like he's broken sticks and i'm not saying this is right or wrong but that's who he is and once you the players or coaches understand what he's all about then then you understand him as a person like that that's all he wants is to win hockey games and help his teammates mm -hmm. that's what it comes down to and a he does a good job, and his teammates all like him. And, Kluge, we know that you stepped away from uh, the Canuck organization to spend more time with your family. You probably couldn't have ever imagined how much time you would end up spending with your family, uh, given the situation we're all in uh, in the world. How have the Kluge's uh, ridden out the coronavirus, and what's next for you? Are you? Will you at some point look to get back into the hockey circle? Well... I, I loved what I did. I, there's no question about it. Like I, I get excited going to the ring. I love everything about it. But uh, obviously, the family had had obviously a lot to do with it. But there's other reasons why I, I stepped down, uh, which I'll, I'll I'll leave that personal. Uh, personal. I don't want to comment too much on that. But uh, will I get back involved? Well. I'd love to, but at the same time, it's got to make sense for me and my family. I've, I've had numerous talks with, with uh, certain situations, but I'm going to, I told teams that I would wait till after the draft and, and see if it, anything could make sense. But, and as far as in the meantime, it's, it's, you know, it's unfortunate for everybody uh, that we're going through this, but we're doing our best, you know, we're staying at home or we're doing everything we're told by government and medical officials. And, you know, my, my son's heavily in a hockey and, uh, we shoot a lot of pucks. We play basketball, we play baseball. We go for a lot of bike rides, just like most everybody else is doing. So <laughs> it's, uh, 
Yeah, there's obviously some days where, you know, they're, they're harder than others, but we've, we've managed and, you know, as trying to make it a positive, we, we got to spend a lot of time with, even with my daughter, we watch a lot of movies, we do a lot of things together. So, uh, it's, it's been good in that sense, but, uh, you know, I, I think the kids miss, you know, the school and their sports and, and things like that. Well, it's great to hear you sounding so well, and we really do appreciate you taking a little time to join us here on the VanCast, so thanks so much for doing this. Anytime, guys. It's uh, it's good to hear from you guys, too. Thanks again to Dan Kluche for joining us here on the VanCast. Uh, before we get into what Kluche had to say there, Brett Dranser, just to want to take a sec uh, to let people know that most of the listeners are in and around, most of our listeners are in and around Vancouver, and what better way to promote your business than through our podcast, The VanCast. Our listeners are loyal, they're engaged, just like you. So again, what better way to advertise your business than on your favorite podcast? And we know uh, many of you are loyal listeners here to The VanCast, and we certainly appreciate that. So to advertise on The VanCast, just go to theathletic.com slash podcast ads there you're going to fill out a very simple form and we'll get back to you right away so go to theathletic.com slash podcast ads and do that today all right we've covered a lot of ground here on the vancast uh, coming out uh, of a busy weekend and look we we spent a fair bit of the early part of the program talking about uh, you know the behind the scenes uh, inner workings of the Canuck front office that ultimately led to uh, the dismissal or the departure of Judd Brackett uh, we know that others have left the Vancouver Canuck organization here, other high-profile guys, and interesting to hear Dan Cloutier there when I, you know, it was couched as he was leaving the, the organization for, for family reasons, and when I said that, and he said, well, family, re- family reasons were part of it, so uh, clearly a little more to that story there. Yeah, no, absolutely, and, you know, Dan, considering the way he's remembered by Canucks fans, and I think it's unfair, I mean, I laid it out in that one question where I was like, you know, the fact of the matter is the Canucks made a bad trade for Dan Kluche. Like, they traded Adrian Nacoin, who played another 15 years as a really good <laughs> right-handed shooting defenseman. And boy, would that howitzer have looked good with the twi- Sedine Twins cycling, eh, in the West Coast Express era. But, you know, Kluche, to his credit, came to Vancouver Raw. He grafted all this, you know, uh, technique working with Clarkey and company, uh, you know, onto his game. And the season after that wild disappointment... You know, he was a 9-14 starter, played 16 games, I mean, or 60 games. I mean, he was he actually grew into being an above-average NHL starter during his time in Vancouver, and then the injuries came, and, and then the rest of his career unfolded the way that his playoff experience in Vancouver went and, and just sort of confirmed for everybody that, oh, he was the goalie we saw in the playoffs. But the actual truth of Dan Cloutier's Canucks career, and I know I'm a truther here, and, and people are yelling, <laughs> yelling, listening to me make this defense of Dan Cloutier, but it's true. I swear. I swear it's true. The numbers back it up. The stories back it up. Talk to people who know, know goaltending. Kevin Woodley has my back on this, so that's all that matters. Um, you know, Dan Cloutier, I'm always astonished by just the grace and the, you know, level of openness that he has in remembering that time of his career and, and a time that, you know, he still seems to see with, with a healthy dose of context, um, even if this market doesn't share that sort of uh, a distance and, and sort of humane view of it. No, look, I've always had the utmost respect for Kluch, and I'm glad that he took our phone call. Like, look, Tim Thomas won a Stanley Cup and then headed for the hills and wouldn't talk to anybody. Uh, Dan Kluche, we know his issues in the playoffs and still, you know, answers his phone, says yes when we ask him all these years later to come on and relive uh, some of those moments. So uh, full credit to him, and uh, hopefully the listeners mm-hmm. uh, enjoyed our visit with Dan Kluche here on the VanCast. Uh, a lot of time ahead before the Canucks and the Wild ultimately get on the ice but uh, you're going to see and hear and read an awful lot in the way of previews, and there's going to be a lot of discussion, um, you know, looking ahead to uh, that play-in round. Marcus Foligno of the Minnesota Wild is Michael Russo's guest on Straight from the Source. Uh, you can find that this week at The Athletic as Future well. Future so public enemy the- number one in Vancouver. Foligno or, or oh, Russo? Oh, yeah, Foligno. Well, both. No, no, no Foligno, <laughs> of course. Uh, you know, it's funny. I think uh, there was the one game in Minnesota – he didn't, fig- he didn't figure in the scoring, but he may have been the most prominent player on the ice. He was just running around, hammering any Canuck, uh, yep. 
you know, McEwen fought him, but an absolute handful. You can imagine uh, trying to match up against that. I'm not sure the Canucks have anybody uh, on their side. I mean, McEwen stood in there. I don't know that Zach McEwen is going to play uh, come play in time with uh, the options that Travis Green will have. But uh, Marcus Foligno, if people don't know a lot about him, they're going to find out in a hurry because uh, oh, yeah. you know, it just seems like his game is tailor made for playoffs or play ins uh, as as it were. <laughs> yeah, he's a good player, man. He's a really good third liner. All right, uh, busy show, but uh, we've got a little bit more business to take care of. Before we're done, we wouldn't want to go through another uh, VanCast without uh, Name That Canuck. Uh, I think you've surged ahead here. Uh, I've had my struggles, so uh, it's uh, you know, it's early in the week, but uh, i got to make a bit, of comeba- a bit of a comeback here. So well, uh, hit me with some clues, and we'll see what we can do. Hopefully I don't need all three of them. Yeah, a little bonus clue for you before I get started. From one burly <laughs> forward to another. All right. Uh, the former, okay. This former Canuck... Drafted from the London Knights. Ranks fifth all-time in single-season rookie score. Ah. He was drafted from the London Knights? Yep. Okay. Um. Rookie score. Um. The wheels are churning here. I don't know. I, I can't even. I'll move on to clue number two, and hopefully, I can get it. I, I don't. I can't even think who played for the London Knights. <laughs> I, you know what? It's like the. It's like when you gave me the American Born, and it like threw me for a loop, right? Because I would. Right. Like I'm just fixating on that wasn't. Yeah. Yes. Um, this player contributed 51 points during the campaign in which the Canucks won their first playoff series in franchise history. Oh, jeez. So this is the era um, specific clue. <laughs> yeah. Um, 51 points. 51 points. Okay. Um, and the first year they won a playoff series. Mm-hmm. So, okay. It's also the first year they made the playoffs. No, I'll, I'll, I'll give you that as well. First year they made the playoffs? Or the yep. first year they won a playoff series? Well, or that, both, ha- you t- well, both happened in the same year. Oh, so. okay. Uh, so we're going way back. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. yeah. All right. Um, I don't know. I want to say, like, uh, from that era. Um, oh, man. Uh, Dennis Ververgaard? Yes. Yes. Come on. Was <laughs> yes, it? Yes, bud. You nailed it. Yeah. All right. You I got that it. was... A minute. <laughs> Pulled it out. Pulled it yes. out, bud. Yes. Okay. <laughs> that was the least confident correct guess of the name that Canuck series so far. Well, I wanted to say I wanted to say Don Lever, but I, I like I have no idea where Don Lever played his junior hockey, and so I had Don Lever in the back of my mind, but I don't know. Anyway, well, that's why I went Knights. I thought Knights would throw okay. it off because you don't think about a Knights player being that old. You know, like you think of the Knights as like. Uh, the the machine Modern. they've become over the yeah, last twenty five exactly. years, right? Yes. So yeah. that's why. I, but so and, and then my final quote or my final um, my final clue was going Dutch uh, at his rookie debut press conference uh, <laughs> with with founding father of the Canucks Coley Hall. Uh, this player was asked to remove his shirt so that he could show off his muscles to the media and flex. After he did so, the media invited Hall to do the same. When Hall did so, he sucked in his pants. They fell out to his ankles, and it was front page news <laughs> the next day. That was I, I think that's a, cha- that's a chapter from your book, too, isn't it? <laughs> it is, 100%. But it's just <laughs> exactly. such a good nugget. <laughs> no, it's a great story. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, I'm going to take my two points and run because it was a yes. bit of a wild guess. But, um... No, whatever. Buzzer beater. Well done. Okay. Um, good stuff. Lots of good stuff. Uh, hopefully people uh, stuck with us. I know it's a little longer than we're used to, but uh, we felt yep. that there was plenty of good content in there. So uh, that's the beauty of podcasting. Uh, you're not beholden to any kind of time limit. So uh, good start to the week. Good start to the month. And let's see what the week ahead brings. We'll reconvene and we'll do this uh, again uh, midweek. But for Drancer, this is J-Pat. As always, thanks so much for listening to us here 
on The Athletic. And again, uh, we say this every time, but uh, don't forget to write and subscribe to The Athletic. And uh, we certainly look forward to any and all feedback you have. If you have suggestions for us, we would love to hear from you. Uh, it is the Vancast here at The Athletic and theathletic.com.